everybody, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in fact keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are in your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon, wherever you are. Uh, Aloha. I'm just coming back from a couple weeks of grandma duty in Hawaii, and I think my body is telling me it's 3 o'clock in the morning. But it's okay. I'm really excited to be here. I have a fantastic guest on. It's one of those sisters by other misters, and I'm really, really excited. So to my friends from Canada, it's a beautiful day in paradise. And uh, being back in Florida, it's really nice to, to get back home and get back into the, the uh, thick of things in life. But anyway, let's just jump right into our show today. I have a fun guest, a gal that I met through another friend of ours, but she listened to a show that Marty Ward, I did with Marty Ward, and those of you that knew my friend Marty, bless her heart, Marty passed on um, a couple months ago, and Marty was really involved. Her passion was building confidence through kids in Uganda and here in the United States. And then I had a guest on Martha Hoy. Martha did a lot of work with um, children in, in Uganda and in Africa. And I'm thinking, what is going on? There's a pattern here with these successful women and, and what they're doing. And then I met Kathy Craig. And Kathy has an organization that does work with African orphans in Uganda. And I'm thinking, okay, this is fabulous. Well, we met and we hit it off and had a blast. And she's my guest today. And I'm so excited. So, Miss Kathy, are you with me? I am here, and thank you so much for having us today. We really appreciate the opportunity to share our story, Debbie. Well, I'm really glad that you're here, and and what you're doing is fabulous. And to start off the show, Kathy, I always ask my guests a little bit about them so my audience can understand who you are. So could you just tell me a little bit about where you you came from? Where did you grow up, your family situation, and then we'll dive into what you're doing today. Absolutely. Um, Family? Born in Baltimore, raised in a rural, I guess it was, it's rural, it was at the time, I'm not really sure now, in a small place called Glen Arm, Maryland, and um, a family of six, mom, dad, four kids, so I've got three siblings, a wonderful, wonderful childhood, growing up, moved to Palm Beach County when we were all very young. And grew up here locally, um, local for me now. Um, I'm in West Palm, but grew up in, in Boca Raton, Florida. Um, a wonderful place to, again, to grow up and just experience life. And went to school locally. 
uh, all of our family, and then uh, went to the University of Florida where I got a journalism and communications degree. And from there, moved right up to Chicago and started working in the advertising industry and was very fortunate to land a spot at one of the largest ad agencies at that time in the world by the name of Leo Burnett and was so blessed to be able to work on the Procter & Gamble account. I thought I'd, I'd really gone to heaven at that point um, because I knew that would be a great way to build my resume and to work on some of the most incredible products on the globe and got a great start in the advertising field and then moved back to Florida after a good four and a half years in Chicago because Chicago, Florida, where would you rather live? Chicago was great, but Florida's, um, like you say, it's paradise here. So sorry for all of our friends up north. And got into uh, television broadcast advertising and worked in the corporate field for a good, oh wow, I hate to say how many years, but it's 25, 30 years, um, at television stations doing sales and marketing and serving as uh, an account executive and later a national sales manager, a local sales manager, um, but yeah, having sales teams and working in the broadcast industry. So that was kind of our start, but a, a, a wonderful life, not a lot of turmoil or anything that we had to rise above, um, a very close-knit family still to this day, and, and just so happened to have a father that spent a couple of years at the University of Cape Town, which is kind of how my whole you know, once I look back on it, I didn't know it then, but it's just a beautiful web that was woven that has its purpose that goes all the way back in time. And I had no idea then that my father's time at the University of Cape Town, South Africa, and his work with Rotary would ever come back later in my life and have any kind of impact on me, but it did. So quick question, when your dad was over there, obviously the family moved there for a few years? Actually, no. He, at that time, I think he was a serial um, student. Okay. <laughs> he, 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 was, uh, he was in the Navy for a while, and he did get a degree at, um, at Yale. He got another degree at University of Maryland, and then he spent another couple of years, um, which was a Rotarian ambassadorial scholarship, okay. um, which was really studying abroad. And he decided to go to the University of Cape Town because it was someplace different to go. He may have even thrown a dart on the globe. And, and that was where he ended up. And he, in order to give back to Rotary at the time, uh, there's obviously a, uh, an expectation that you will provide some kind of service when you are, are a student um, in, in that ilk from Rotary. And although he wasn't a writer, or he wasn't schooled in writing, he decided to uh, study tribal relations. So back in 1950 and 51, he traversed all of the southern part, the sub-Saharan part of Africa, um, either by train or mule or bus, however he could, and talked to tribes and wrote about their backgrounds and their structure and how they worked with other tribes. And he ended up publishing um, books and, and articles on tribal relations in Africa. As we were children growing up, he would always show the old carousel slide projectors. I know yeah. that's like very old technology, but for some of us who grew up at that time, it was everything. This feeling came over me as I watched those slides that I was there. 
So I felt that I was among the tribe sitting in a circle watching these different rituals happen, and I became even at that time very mesmerized by the people on the ground, by the tribe, tribal rituals. I felt like I belonged there. And again, it didn't hit me until later in life that that's where that connection, the really strong connection to Africa started for me. You know, it's very interesting you describing that right now because I just came back from, you know, the, the vacation or the grandma duty in Hawaii. And I mm-hmm. had the opportunity, we were on Oahu, I had the opportunity to take the grandkids to the Polynesian Cultural Center. And there they have um, seven or six or seven villages which come from, uh, they're showing what the Polynesian culture was like. And it was Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, Hawaii, uh, one of the mm-hmm. uh, couple other places, and it was the the music and the drums and the dancing and the tribal stories. Uh, and I was watching my three and five year old grandchildren, and the three year old was so cute because she was up there just dancing along and clapping and singing, and was so looking at the fire and the water and the stories. And I'm thinking, so what? How has that affected her now? Because that is in her. And I can, as you're watching your your videos, you absorb that, especially as a child, you're like a sponge, you absorb those things. And and I'm hoping she'll remember it always. Um, Because it was really exciting. Now, there were some frightening things when they, you know, the tribal (laughs) swords that came out and all that, you know, the noise there. My five-year-old was a little more scared. Um, But I can see how as a child, as a, a young person, that's really enthralling. It's, it's so different. It's fun. So having that in your background, that was in your DNA at that point, um, how did you get involved in Uganda? We're going to jump right that's in. That's a really good question. I, I never expected it. I, I didn't expect any of this, what's happening now. Um, I think it was about 2005, 2006. I started going to a, a church in uh, a nearby neighborhood, and a woman um, was showing up at church in pretty much full tribal regalia, the dress of another, another nation far away. And one of the small groups at the church um, brought her in and, and started asking her questions. Uh, where are you from? And tell us your background. And um, it goes back pretty far, but her, uh, one of her family members um, had a documentary done about his, his life. And it's still available today, I believe. It's uh, Kasim the Dream. And it's about a young boxer named Kasim Ouma from Uganda who was uh, pretty much abducted into the Uganda army as a young boy. And his way of dealing with what he was asked to do uh, as a, a young soldier was to get involved in the boxing program. And so he did. And through that boxing program, he was able to rise above his circumstances. And he became a world-class boxer and started traveling around the world to compete. He ended up in Madison Square Garden. He became very famous. He, he boxed for many, many years. And, and so my local church's connection to this one woman whose, whose relative was a, a, a very well-known boxer, um, it was interesting. We, we just started talking to her, and she talked to this other group, and they said, well, why don't you come over to Uganda and see yourself? We could use some help. So it really started over uh, one of her grandsons. I think he saw a cover of Sports Illustrated and asked why his people didn't have shoes. So it started over a request for shoes, 
And I got involved at that point and thought, well, they were a little bit more um, geared toward medical missions at the very beginning because the, uh, the couple who started the mission, uh, the woman, it's Ron and Cheryl Wallen, and it's called 2J Ministries. And she was, and still is, she's got her doctorate now in um, hospital administration and, and nursing, and they've got a, a very broad um, and growing medical program over there and even a clinic. Um, so I decided to go over with them and thought, I'm not really sure. I've never done this before. I don't know why I'm going other than I decided to say yes. It feels right. I feel Africa calling to me. Um, I know it's a godly purpose to help with the orphans and the widows and to help people who need help. So I just raised my hand and said, I'm here, I'll go. I'll help however you need help. And that's really how it started. And then from there, I got involved on their board and worked with them to start their orphan education program and then kept traveling with them every couple of years. I'd go over again and again. Relationships start developing at that point. And the, the folks over there are so incredible, although by our standards they don't have much. And again, that's just a perspective. They don't have the stuff, and they don't accumulate the things we do. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't have an incredible source of joy and an incredible amount of joy. And I think it is the part of the, the beauty of traveling there is the absence of noise, the absence of distraction. You don't have running water. You don't have indoor plumbing. You don't have air conditioning. In fact, one of the funny stories um, as I look back on traveling there was our group, our mission group, the girls, um, we do bunk up with, with a number of people to save money when we go over there. And the hotel we stay at is a mission hotel, so it does have a, a restaurant and running water. Um, but it's, it's, you know, maybe like, uh, I can't really compare it to anything here in the States. It's still a little different. And uh, we decided that I think out of their many rooms, they have a few of them that are air conditioned. So, of course, uh, the mission uh, Chief said, so do you girls want an air-conditioned room or unair-conditioned? They don't have many, so you have to speak up early. And we said air-conditioned. Of course, I can't imagine staying in an unair-conditioned room in that heat. Well, it never dawned on us at that time that the electricity in the country only works about 50% of the time. So even if you have electricity, you still don't have electricity. And we kept wondering why the air conditioner in our room kept going off, and it was hot because the electricity only works 50% of the time if you have it. So it's the same with everything there. The, the internet is, is sparse. If you have it, it might work, it might not. If you have electricity, it might work, it might not. Um, you just learn to love the, the nature of the way things work in Africa, which is by our standards, it's never up to expectations because you have to prepare to be inconvenienced at every turn. Things break down. They break down all the time, and there may not be a quick fix, but that's just the way Africa is, and that's part of the beauty of, of living in Africa, being in Africa, and what the folks who live there, um, they're very resourceful. They have learned to live with things not always working the way we would expect them to work, and they're okay with it, and they find other ways around it. So they're some of the most resourceful people I've ever met. So that was my start. That was my start, and 
traveling to Uganda and falling in love with the people there, and then realizing going back to uh, my own father's emphasis on education. When our family went to, when we all, we were fortunate enough and blessed enough all to go to four-year colleges. He worked very, very hard. And uh, we all went to four-year colleges, but it dawned on me, even as I went to college, I remember him saying, I will pay for your tuition and your books, but everything else you're paying for. So he put the emphasis on education. You can go as long as you want to. You can get a master's. You can get a PhD. I will pay for your education. Everything else, you're on your own. So he instilled in all of us the sense of responsibility for ourselves. If there was anything other than education that we wanted, we had to go find jobs. When we came home for two-week stints during holidays and spring break, we had to work. And other than that, we got to go to school and we enjoyed it because it was provided to us and we knew there was a greater purpose. So I think it was his instilling in us that education is everything. And obviously he was a serial student and he went far. He did really, really well and he obviously knew that it was all because of the opportunity he was provided. So I started looking at this wonderful program that 2J Ministries had started and they were doing everything. They still do. They are providing uh, health care at a local clinic. During the, the COVID pandemic and while the schools were shut down, they're providing food, maize flour and beans and, and rice to the, to the leper colonies. So yeah, they, they are, they're providing all services to the local communities, not just education. That's when real, we realized that we wanted to focus just on the education and come alongside, um, come alongside some of these mission agencies and, and mission groups that are working so hard to provide food, resources, education, and, and medical um, provisions. So we knew we would help the local communities as well as the missions. It's just interesting, you know, I'm, I'm thinking because there's so many uh, aid groups that are, are, their mission is thwarted by what's happening over there politically. And have Correct. you found that any of the stuff that you're doing is being held up by the government over there or by the military? I don't know exactly what's happening, but it's, the kids don't always get what people want to send to them. And that's, you know what, that's a good point, Debbie. That's exactly the reason why we work through people we know and we have vetted. So having worked with 2J Ministries for over 10 years, I knew everything about that organization and I was on their board. So I knew how transparent they were. I knew that they were upholding to all of the accounting and transparency standards here. Our partner in, in Kenya, uh, two young ladies out of Colorado who basically started the same way 2J Ministries did was by doing mission work in, in, in Kenya. They're in the slums surrounding Nairobi. And we loved the work they did. And, and Lauren vetted them while she was in Kenya. And we vetted them on a number of calls. Um, and it's a pretty strenuous and rigorous vetting process. In fact, in some regards, we're pretty certain that we stretch them a little bit and ask them to do things that they might not have done on their own um, because we know that we're going to be held accountable. But, but it's an extension of teams. We're a team. They are our team. 
and their African teams on the ground are our team. So we've got this huge extension of, it's a bridge across continents where we know the work they're doing on the ground. We do go over there and visit, and we have their agreement that we can go over at any time unannounced um, and check on progress. So we feel very comfortable with the work they're doing and we're doing, and uh, we ask for things in a specific way. Um, but once the relationships form, they're just kids. They're kids who want an opportunity. They're like any other child here or anywhere else in the world. But without an education, without an education, they, they just won't go very far. It's, it's, it's plain and simple. And in these nations where they are at the level of extreme poverty, and these are the villages that we support, there really isn't a whole lot of hope if you don't have an education. Education there is different, and, and we've talked about this in, in other shows, is that the ki- it's not provided for the children. They have to pay for it. That might be a surprise to, to a lot of people here in, in our country, is that school is not free. Actually, if you think about it, school isn't free here either. We all as taxpayers get taxed for the beautiful privilege for everyone's kids to go to school for free. So our tax dollars pay for that. But in these other nations where it's an agrarian society and it's farm-based and there isn't a lot of money and you live in extreme poverty, there's no one to tax. Do you choose the schools or the children? How, how, do, you get, how do you support the kids? The mission teams on the ground and the African teams there because they know more than anyone in their own villages and their, the, the slums where they work, they know the children who have it the hardest. They know the neediest children, the families where they're true orphans or they might live with a grandparent or an aunt. And even those families have taken on additional children um, many times when they can't afford to feed them all. So their arms are open wide to more street kids, as we call them, and they will take in more and more. But at some point, the children may get fed. They may get one meal a day, but they're not all going to school. And these are nations in the villages we work where about 50% of the children don't go to school, and only one in four will receive the equivalent of a high school education Less than 6% go on to um, post-secondary education or vocational school or university. So imagine our country, imagine our country um, being run by teenagers and, and young people without an education, and that's what's happening there. Um, I love this statistic. The, the median age in Florida is 42. The median age on the continent of Africa is 19.7 years. Wow. So you're trying to run an entire country with teenagers and 20-something-year-olds, and they don't have the life experience yet. And if they don't have the mentors and the wisdom through life experiences to be able to make good decisions, that's kind of what's happening over there. We just want to give them an opportunity. You know, an education gives you options. You don't have to use those options. You don't have to use your education. We're going to get into the educating the generation, but the kids that get left behind, what's happening to that group? Because you and I have talked about, uh, I have worked with um, organizations that deal with the, the young people in Nigeria, and in my background, because of the scam, you know, I've always wondered what would happen 
to that generation if we could get them early and train them into something so that they wouldn't have to go into organized crime, wouldn't have to get into fraud and scam because they're good at it. They're really good at it because they make money at it. Yeah. But it's, you know, I always said if they could do something for good as well as they do the bad, it'd be phenomenal. Right. So you've right. got, you know, in this in this situation, you see the children that and they're very fortunate if they get picked up by your organization, but the kids you can't do it for everybody. So what's happening well, to the kids that are not being serviced? Well, it's not a pretty picture. Okay. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. Um, there are parents um, sometimes in some of these families who will abandon their children. A lot of them actually get abandoned to orphanages because they know somewhere somewhere um, might sponsor their child. So some of the families who are unable to afford to feed all their children or send them to school will abandon them. Sometimes they are sold. Early pregnancies, early marriage, and these once again are all uneducated um, children. So when they have children of their own, oftentimes those children are uneducated. It's a rule that an educated mother will educate her children. I think it's like 67% more likely that a woman who gets an education, she's more likely to be employed herself and to make a greater income and to have um, an improved health situation for her entire family. She's more likely to educate her own children. So theoretically, if we can educate one generation, the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. Because then the parents will educate their own. It's just getting that wheel, you know, that wheel going. It's getting that momentum going. So the children who are left behind, it's not pretty. They will be left to fend for themselves. They will be abused, many of them. Uh, one of our youth leaders, we have a, a young friends of AOEF. It's a youth advisory council. And one of our uh, young leaders is already uh, writing a project proposal to help women who are in construction um, in his country. And they're young mothers who are trying to feed their children and they work on these construction sites. And they are sexually abused, they are harassed, and they make uh, less than $2 a day. Mm. So it's just hardship everywhere. It's either education or hardship. Um, one of our sponsored uh, young people in, uh, in Africa is a, is a true orphan who was eating out of garbage heaps. So again, it does get desperate. It gets very desperate. And um, every year or so, we have some of the children in our programs um, who die of malaria or typhoid or any number of diseases that here we could handle very, very quickly and easily. But they just don't have the healthcare system there to always be able to get the children over the hump of whatever disease that might afflict them. Mm -hmm. um, we had a close call just a few months ago with one of our um, young friends at AOEF, a youth leader. He was battling typhoid and malaria at the same time just a few months ago and ran out of medicine, and um, we weren't sure he was going to make it. He did. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness he made it. Um, but it's touch and go. It's touch and go. What's the day in a life of a child there? What did you see when you got over there with these kids? They might be required, they, they're required to help with all the household chores. And that might mean um, gathering water from a nearby well or um, any source of water. It may not be clean. That's why so many of them uh, will get typhoid. 
And they're drinking unclean water, many of them, and they have to go collect the water for the day, and that's water to cook with, water to bathe the children with. Um, and it, they have jerry cans, which look like fuel cans for us, and they're usually yellow. And they carry them down to the water source or fill them up from um, a borehole, which is a well, and they fill them up for the day, and that is usually before they go to school. And many times they have to walk miles and miles and miles. And it's usually the girls that have that duty, even at school. There are a lot of schools where the, the girls are um, the ones that have to go collect the water for the whole school with the jerry cans. So it's, it's difficult. It's strenuous, even when they have school. And when they get home, they are usually studying by candlelight. And again, no indoor plumbing, no air conditioning, and yet there's no grumbling. That was my there's next no question. Did you hear any, any complaining? Never. Yeah. Never. You never hear a complaint. You know, it's so funny. Um, you and I were talking earlier about um, the differences between Western culture and some of these nations in Africa, and, and I think I made mention that I don't believe the word entitlement even translates into these tribal languages. Um, but boy, does gratitude run deep. If you have a pillow, you're lucky. They don't have pillows. They may not have a toothbrush. You start looking at your every daily privilege that we have, and you start, see, you start being more grateful when you spend time there because, my goodness, there's nothing. There's, there's no pillow, there's no bed for many of them. Um, there's just so little, and yet they're happy. They're so happy. They're very happy people, and they're very respectful. They're very grateful. And again, against the backdrop of no noise and distraction, that's very attractive. And I think it's why so many people who go over there and do mission work in Africa feel this pull. We have several people on our board who either worked there or lived there for a short time, and they all say, I want to go back. I feel it pulling me. Mm-hmm. And it's a very real um, experience where once you spend time in Africa, for at least the people I know, when, they're, when they know people there and they experience it the way it's meant to be experienced, they, they, they want to go back. It's important to get out of the United States, get out of North America, you know, get out of where we are and, and live. I've spent time overseas, and, and I appreciate home so much when I get come back. When I was looking at pictures of Marty and the pictures that you sent to me, the smiles on these children are just, they're, they enlighten us. They're just so genuine and so God-given. That's all I can say. It's God-given. And, and you, you know, we wonder about who gets born where and why. And that's, that's, ex- that's exactly it. Right? It's just a matter of what zip code, you know, the, the old adage, it's what zip code you're born in. Yeah. And they didn't ask to be born there like we didn't ask to be born here. So opportunity is just a matter of circumstance. The same God-given talent is in a child over there as, a, as is in a child over here. The only difference is some have options and opportunity and some don't. So what excites me is we can give them opportunity. It's not a handout. It's just educate them. And, and just like we do here in the States and in other countries, give them the opportunity and see where they take it. We were talking earlier and you said hope doesn't come in a handout. And mm-hmm. you're, giving, you're handing out the opportunity. The handout is them. temporary. And, right. and there, there's a, a series called uh, When Helping Hurts. 
that a lot of mission groups will go through the entire series. Um, the book, the, the first book I read was amazing because I, I thought I was a pretty smart person until I read that book and everything I thought about helping other people and developing nations was turned on its head. Um, and that's the reason you see half-built buildings and harvesters rotting out in you know, fields, rusting out in fields, because so many people go into nations with good intentions, thinking, I want to help. I want to be a good person. I want to extend a hand of service, and I want to help. But how we think of helping people isn't the way they need to be helped. So mm -hmm. if you provide um, farming equipment, and you don't think for a minute that they don't have the oil to oil the parts when they, you know, so that they won't rust, it won't last as long as it's supposed to. They don't have the nuts and bolts to replace parts when they break. So you think you're providing a solution, but you're really not. And before we even started African Orphan Educational Foundation, I realized we need to have a 20-year plan. We don't have a three-year plan, a five-year plan. We have a 20-year plan. And you have to go with the intention of not leaving. It's not a one and done. It's not one and done. There's no such thing as a two-week mission trip. When you go, you're either in or you're not in. Mm -hmm. How can people get a hold of you guys? Where, where, where are you online or... We have, a, we have a website, which is African Orphan Education, without the AL, uh, AfricanOrphanEducation.org, so it's a .org. We are a registered 501c3 public charity, so everything, all of the um, donations are uh, tax-exempt. Um, but yeah, you can go to our website. Check us out first. Learn a little bit about our history. We, we, we're only two years old. We just started in 2019, but we have 10 to 12 years of experience behind us. And we didn't do this without a lot of tremendous thought about a 20-year plan. So you don't go into something willy-nilly and say, hey, let's give it a start and see where it goes. You really have to give years of thought into how are we going to do it, how will it be sustainable, how will it be scalable? What happens if? Um, and we're there for the long run. And we're all about education and, again, working through other small uh, mission groups on the ground who could use our help educating the children that they are providing mosquito nets to, shoes to, medical uh, provisions to, and we're just there to provide an education because that's what, that's what we believe is going to be the big game changer because then they have the wisdom and they will have the life experience and they will be the ones to get the jobs. And we're kind of, you know, we're, we're, when you think about education, it's the great equalizer, right? So if you have a child in Africa that grew up in any of the sub-Saharan nations and a child here and they both have the same education, that kind of equals the playing field. I'm looking at your website and you have a quote there by Nelson Mandela and it says, education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world. That's right. And that's true and, I, and it's a really fabulous website. And uh, again, I'm looking at the kids and it reminds me of the stuff that Marty did and the things that, that Martha Hoyer is, is involved in. I mean, there are a lot of organizations that are trying to get over there, but what I like about what you're doing is that you've got that, that long-term plan and that... Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to we've got to change the generation starting young. We've got to got to get the little kids because by the time they're teenagers and older, it's very difficult to change what they've what they've grown up with. Um, and and like you said too, you, you you 
educated child, and then the mom's going to want to. The mom wants to get in there. I mean, I've worked with a lot of mothers that uh, need to need to learn how to start a little company and mm-hmm. provide for their kids. They may be that. That was the one thing when my daughter was was thinking about getting married. Uh, it was before she finished college, and I went to her um, fiance at the time, and I said, my only request as a mother is that my daughter finishes school because at the time my husband had passed away I said I need to know that she can provide for herself so to support your organization uh, donations are are what you you guys are looking for are you looking for assistance and in personal help How, how best can people serve you we we started by asking people just to sponsor students we are all volunteer based we don't have anyone on a staff right now we don't have we don't pay any staff we're just a volunteer organization obviously we're hoping one day in the future that might change so that we can do even more but again we're young we're a budding and emerging uh, nonprofit and um, we want our the good that we're doing to to expand you go to our website you'll see that there's a, a specific giving level at which uh, we want our donors then to become student sponsors but any amount even five dollars helps um, a, a US dollar does go a long way in Africa and obviously we have we need to sustain um, our our programs um, but everything goes toward the education and just keeping us going so that we can keep giving to the kids it's all about the kids well, it's a, it's so any amount helps. Any amount okay. helps, Debbie. So everybody go to AfricaOrphanEducation.org, and I'll put that on the replay too, and see what Kathy and the group are doing. It's, I, I look at the kids, and you know, my heart goes out to the children too, wherever they are in the world. And uh, giving my grandkids hugs this weekend, I, I know that, that pure joy of just pausing from the busyness of our life and, and showing them that we care. And that's what they need to know. They need to know that they're loved in some way. And, and getting that education, I know it, it's tremendous for these kids. And uh, I saw it in Marty's work, and, and I'm really you know, very honored to have met you and, and seen what you're doing over there. And uh, I, I wish I had we, five more lives. <laughs> I know. We, we feel it's a privilege to do it. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm so happy all of the time. At least I try to be because I realize that what I'm doing is a privilege not many people you know I was in the corporate world but I'm in a position where I can do this for the rest of my life and just give what an incredible way to live your life absolutely just give absolutely and there's no end to it yeah it's, it's pretty amazing well it's, it's fabulous and uh, I'm so grateful for what you're doing and, and I want people to look at this uh, you know African it's the African Orphan Education Foundation but the website is AfricaOrphanEducation.org. We are African Orphan Educational Foundation, but our website, because that's way too long to type, is just yeah. AfricanOrphanEducation.org. And we're, and we're based West, in West Palm Beach. West, West Palm, Palm Beach, Beach yeah. Florida. Mm-hmm. Out of West Palm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if anybody needs to email you, it's info at AfricanOrphanEducation.org. And I'll put all this up on slides uh, in the replays. But it, it's, a, it's a really neat organization, and their website's uh, very, very educational. And, and the, the video that I did put out as a promotion, it says 97 million African children are denied an education. And mm-hmm. honestly, we just need to help change the life of one. It starts with one. 
Exactly. It, as you said, that one, if it's a, a child in a home of four, you teach the youngest, and the youngest is going to, the older ones are going to catch on. They really will. Right. And, right. And do we have a few more minutes for me to talk yeah, about the children's book? Sure. Good. Um, one of the things that happened during COVID, COVID was pretty devastating because if you can imagine as an organization that pays for children's educational expenses, we were relying on the, on the educational institutions to be open. So guess what happened when these nations went to lockdown? <laughs> we're faced with a big, uh-oh, what do we do now? So that forced us years ahead of time. We knew that sometime in our future, five, six years down the road, we might be in a position um, where it would be warranted for us to start producing our own educational supplements, you know, outside of what the children get in school. And during COVID, we were forced to speed that process up by years. And we have a children's uh, book. It's a story and coloring book called, called Mercy's Magnificent Dreams. And we had it vetted by teachers over in Uganda for a fourth grade student or a P4 learner to make sure that the concepts and the language and the uh, sentence structure were appropriate for a fourth grader. And we asked artists in Palm Beach County if they would be willing to help us illustrate it. And we're almost done. We're almost at the point of publishing. We're working on the cover now. And all of those books will be provided for free to children over there. Um, so that's part of uh, where a donation might go is to provide some of the books to the children over there. And we also uh, are on week two of our leadership curriculum with some of the older students. We found that what separates some of the children um, besides an education is having a coach, having a leadership coach, understanding how to become a leader, how to present yourself, how to put resources together and run a project. So we are on week two of our curriculum called From Leadership to Legacy because we want them to learn that with leadership comes responsibility. And as you grow in your leadership roles, guess what? You now have a responsibility to leave your own legacy. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And you also you have a newsletter called Breakfast on the Nile. I'm seeing Breakfast that on, on the, the website. Nile. We do. And please sign up for that. Everyone who goes to our website, if you do nothing more, Sign up for Breakfast on the Nile. There are a lot of great um, cultural nuggets and stories in each one. Perfect. Well, I, I think you're doing a tremendous job, and I hope that this can get the word out a little bit more. I know you're a young organization, but it's fun. and It only starts with one person saying yes, which you did, Ms. Kathy. Thank you so much for saying yes and following your passion. And that's what the one thing we want to do here on Stand Up and Speak Up is, is help people realize that we all can say yes to something. We all have had things happen in our lives that might not have been so wonderful, but out of bad can come some good. And you know, we look at the lives that these kids are living, and from our perspective, it might look bad, but it's, so much good is going to come out of it. So much good is going to come out of one book that you guys are providing, one teacher, one you know, one year of school, and. Uh, finding your purpose in this and, and like you said defining your legacy you're changing a generation which will change the world and that's fabulous thank you so much for all you're doing thank you so much for the opportunity Debbie it means everything to us absolutely so everybody thanks so much for listening to stand up and speak up today go to 
AfricaOrphanEducation.org, and take a look at what what Kathy's group is doing, and uh, let's let's support them. So, and, and have a wonderful day, everybody. Kathy, thanks so much for being my guest. I really appreciate you. Yes, thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, and again, we just appreciate every opportunity to share our story. Absolutely. So thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks for being here with Stand Up with us at Stand Up and Speak Up. And we're dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self no matter where you are in the world. We work with a lot of victims of scams. So if you're a victim of scam or cyber crime, please visit www.againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. I'm on the board of SCARS, which is the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. It's an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami. We're supporting scam victims worldwide, and if you can make a small donation to help the victims around the world receive the help they need, please do so. This episode is sponsored by BenfootComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfoteaming products at BenfootComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks folks for being with us today. Go to my website, thewomanbehindthesmile.com for additional information and resources. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and go to Amazon. The Woman Behind the Smile is on Amazon and also my new book, A Gift Called Fearless, just came out on Kindle and will be out soon. And I encourage you to, to become fearless and just say yes. So have a great day, everybody, and thanks very much to my special guest, Ms. Kathy Cray, and for all of you that have been here today. Have a great day. Thanks, folks. <laughs>